Today we're doing environmental ethics. If you are confused that we're doing that today, it's because you haven't looked at the revised date list I gave you. Yes, I shifted those reading um, items from the caskets. I'm not sure why I gave that initial list, but we're now going to be following the order in the caskism of those texts. Um, so there are a few basic points I want you to grasp today about the environment. Um, one point is that this wasn't invented by Pope Francis, yes? So some people will say, oh, Pope Francis, Pope Francis, the environment, uh, la da so si, and whatever. Um, well, I'm consciously, in the notes I've given you, I'm footnoting Pope Benedict. Actually, Pope Benedict uh, possibly had even more to say, and theologically more to say on this point, even though he didn't have an encyclical on it. And obviously, this is a catechism course we're going to be saying what the catechism says about the environment. So this isn't just a Pope Francis thing, it's a Catholic thing. Um, it has a new emphasis because the secular world is concerned about this, but this has been our concern for a long time. So there are a few basic points I want to make today. Um, can you all read this quotation? Do you all know what movie that's from? This is from the Matrix. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. And that's actually, there's a whole type of eco-warrior that views human beings like this. Um, that there are, we are a problem. There are too many of us. We want less of us. Um, and however they're phrasing it, um, somehow humans are a problem. And that's the very opposite of the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, the, the Catholic worldview. Um, so what we're going to be looking at today is, um, among other things, so if nice green earth, you can see how good my artwork is as always, yes. Um, where does our ethical analysis put the human person in relationship to the earth? Well, right at the center that we're the reason the Earth is here. So this is a thing called anthropocentrism. Um, meaning anthropos, man, center, that we're the center of it all. Now there is both a, an authentic way of meaning that, but also what Pope Francis calls a tyrannical way of meaning that. So that's also what I want to articulate in this class, how there's an authentic way in which we are the center, we are the measure of things, but there's also a way that that can be abused in which we treat the environment as a thing to discard, to destroy, which isn't authentic. Now, if you were to ask, before having done this course, where in the catechism am I going to find the church's teaching on the environment? You 
you might not have known where to look other than going to the index. Um, the traditional place is in the context of property. So ownership is one of the lenses we're going to be looking at. So environmental destruction is a type of theft. So that's as it conceptually is how the church categorizes it. But I would point out, I think it's actually also quite a useful way of measuring what's wrong about environmental destruction, what's kind of at stake with that. Okay, so that's kind of, in just a few words, what I'm aiming to cover with you today. There are, what, 10 pages of notes there. We're not going to get through all of those. Um, if we have time, we're going to, I'll explain to you why your pet hamster will not be in heaven. Um, you know, it's sometimes said that uh, if you won't be happy, if you're animal isn't with you in heaven, then God will give you your pet animal. Um, but I would say that if God alone will not suffice for your happiness, then you won't be going to heaven. So don't worry about it. Okay, to our lecture notes. So first page, I'm just spelling out a few basic um, terms, concepts, dominion and stewardship. Um, so dominion, um, taking ourselves you know, back to the beginning in Genesis, when God made man, he said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Now what does this word dominion mean? Well, I note its meaning lies in the preceding part of that verse. Let us make man in our image. So in our image, spiritual soul transcending the value of the material creation. With the spiritual soul capable of rationally governing that material creation. But with that, subservient to God's governance, since we're in his image. So that actually built into dominion is a relative concept, relation to him. It's ultimately his dominion. We share in that dominion. Which brings me on, very obviously, to stewardship. So dominion is a kind of a classical term. Stewardship has become a more fashionable term, but it's actually expressing the same truth. So in Genesis, um, it records how Adam is given this command to till the earth and keep it. So Pope Benedict, I quote, human beings legitimately exercise a responsible stewardship over nature in order pr to protect it, to enjoy its fruits, and to cultivate it, so that it can worthily accommodate and feed the world's population. So we are to protect the environment but to cultivate it. So to till the earth and keep it. So if you don't, if you're a gardener and you don't cultivate your garden, if you don't till it, it just turns to weeds and it, it doesn't achieve what it's capable of. 
But this is the same image of our relationship with the environment. We're not just to leave it, which is kind of this Agent Smith approach that we're a problem. Actually, we have, in a sense, a mission to it, um, to, to cultivate it, to make it achieve what it's capable of. But Pope Benedict gives, in a sense, the measure of that um, to feed the world's population, to accommodate the world. So we're stewards, we're responsible, but the goal is to serve humanity. Okay, and I then quote some bits from the Catechism. As you note, the paragraph numbers, this is actually earlier in the Catechism, even though it's illustrating to us what makes sense in our concepts of treating the seventh commandment in the Life of Christ section. Man is the steward of creation. A steward oversees something on behalf of another. So quoting the Catechism, in God's plan, Man and woman have the vocation of subduing the earth as stewards of God. Then say, to care for it and love it as God loves it, that its beauty might give glory to God. God calls man and woman, made in the image of the creator who loves everything that exists, to share in his providence towards other creatures. Hence their responsibility for the world that God has entrusted to them. So if we destroy the earth, we're destroying God's creation. We're violating the beauty of what he has made. We're stopping it, giving glory to him. To care for it so that it might be able to be available to other humans and to future generations. And we'll reflect on this um, over the next couple of pages. Dominion granted by the creator over the mineral, vegetable, and animal resources of the universe cannot be separated from respect for moral obligations, including those toward the generations to come. So if we destroy an environmental resource such that our children and grandchildren don't have it, we've stolen from. But also to use materials creation, material creation's resources to meet humanity's needs. God created everything for man, but man in turn was created to serve and love God and to offer creation back to him. I'm guessing you've heard the word stewardship before. Yes, I'm, so hopefully I'm just stating the obvious here, or restating it. But as we go on, I'm wanting to clarify some of these things more clearly. Um, okay, page two. Um, here's what I call a, a false and proper centrism. So, you know, I've given that diagram, man at the centre, but there's a false way of understanding that, as well as a true way of understanding it. So the false anthropocentrism is the notion that the earth is here for us to use 
and we can use it any way that suits us. A false anthropocentrism sees the world as a thing we can destroy because we own it. But as I say, stewardship is relative to God, it's not absolute. And ownership is relative with that to other generations, past, future. Again, our ownership isn't absolute. So as Pope Francis puts it, the Bible has no place for a tyrannical anthropocentrism unconcerned for other creatures. He specifies, as I footnote there, false anthropocentrism, what are some characteristics? Well, if it fails to recognize the value of created things, that they do have value, it reduces all value to questions of materialistic convenience. So we can destroy it or not destroy it merely on the criteria of whether it benefits us. Is that it leads to misguided lifestyles. It fails to recognize man's true place in the world, i.e. a place relative to God. And values technology over reality, seeing nature as a mere thing to be exploited. So as I say, that anthropocentrism is routinely denounced by secular scholars and liberal Christian scholars. So um, a writer called John Hart, when the catechism came out, attacked the catechism, saying it has a strong anthropocentrism, unintentionally bordering on idolatry, expressed in the phrase, God created everything for man. Now this line you probably hear a lot of, yeah? We're doing bad stuff, there's a false way of putting us at the center, um, but there is a false way of putting us at the center. What I'm hoping to present to you as something you, in many circles, are less likely to have heard is actually there is an authentic way of understanding that at the center, which is also articulated by Pope Francis in Laudato Si. So page three. an authentic anthropocentrism. So what do we mean here? The doctrine, as I quote there from the catechism, God created everything for man. Why is it here for us? Quoting Vatican II, all things on earth should be related to man as their center and crown. Vatican II again, Man is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. So that tree exists in order that I and you might have an environment to live in. That earth, the air, is all here so that we might have an environment to live in. Whereas you and I have, we say of humans that you have infinite value, absolute value a dignity that comes from your being in the image and likeness of God, willed for your own sake. That's not true of the tree. So the tree is willed by God, but relative to serving humanity's needs. A relative value, not an absolute value. 
quoting Vatican II again, man created in God's image received a mandate to subject to himself the earth and all it contains. And then quoting Pope Francis, God created the world for man, setting humans at the pinnacle of the entire cosmos. Okay, Josh, could you read the quote, block quote there from the catechism, material creation was created for man, the universe? The universe created in by the eternal word, the image of the invisible God, is destined for and addressed to man. Himself created in the image of God and called to a personal relationship with God. And God saw that it was good, very good. For God willed creation as a gift addressed to man, inheritance destined for and entrusted to him. Hence it is legitimate to use animals for food and clothing. They may be used to serve the just satisfaction of, man, of man's needs. So there's a whole string of quotes there from church documents. It's, this is all here for us. Now Pope Benedict makes a point about Christology here. So humanity is ordered to Christ and Christ to the Father. So the material order is ordered to man, man to Christ, Christ to the Father. So that this ordering here is Christological. It's not just us isolated from God. Um, so to summarise it there, the cosmos is ordered to man that through man it might be oriented to Christ. Um, I'm going to read footnote six to you. So this is Pope Benedict in a general audience. He's reflecting on a rabbinic teaching. Christ is then proclaimed the firstborn of all creation. Christ precedes the whole of creation. Having been begotten from all eternity, because of this, all things were created through him and for him. Also in the ancient Jewish tradition, it was affirmed that the whole world was created in view of the Messiah. So the Messiah was going to come as a man. Uh, the universe was created in view of the coming of the Messiah. So when we're saying it's created for man, built into that is it's created for Christ. Okay, shifting focus now. How many of you have heard of the phrases ecocentrism or biocentrism? So when we refer to someone as an eco-warrior, they are worrying about the ecology. Ecocentrism is saying the center of the analysis shouldn't be humanity, it should be the ecology itself. Or biocentrism says the center of the analysis shouldn't be man, it should be life in all of its various forms. So that we're as concerned about the amoeba and the fish 
and the plankton and the tree, they're all living, therefore they all, that's what's valuable. And humans are just one expression of that. Yes, you've heard that kind of attitude expressed. And often people are articulating that attitude even if they're not intellectually coherent with it, but it's their attitude, it's why they're more concerned about the rainforest in the Amazon than they are concerned about the death of the unborn. Um, because it's just, it's just life that matters. Okay, so back to my notes here. So ecocentrism, biocentrism, say these value creation per se as the center of the ethical analysis. These deny an anthropocentric basis of valuing creation because we value man. Quoting Pope Benedict, these eliminate the difference of identity and worth between the human person and other living things. That they involve, therefore, a, a false anthropology. So that nice little quote is Pope Benedict being quoted by Pope Francis in Laudato Si. So again, I want to make the point to you there is a consistency here in the tradition. Pope Francis on this doesn't come out of nowhere. There can be no ecology without an adequate anthropology. When the human person is considered as simply one being among others, the product of chance or physical determinism, then our overall sense of responsibility wanes. So what he's saying, that responsibility. If I understand I am different from the material order, I have a duty to the material order to till it, to care for it. Um, if I lose that sense of responsibility, I'm going to treat it worse, not better. The next little point there, I'm largely taken from Laudato Si. Ecocentrism and biocentrism fail to recognize the importance of interpersonal relations. If the present ecological crisis is one small sign of the ethical, cultural, and spiritual crisis of modernity, we cannot presume to heal our relationship with nature and the environment without healing all fundamental human relationships. Christian thought sees human beings as possessing a particular dignity above other creatures. It thus inculcates esteem for each person and respect for others. So Pope Francis is there saying, you cannot care for the environment if you bypass the question of caring for humanity. Which is why Laudato Si talks about concern for the poor and injustice along with the care of the environment. It's not just an encyclical on the environment. He's saying it's all part of the same package. And if we're viewing all this, the environment as property and the question of theft, then the injustice dimension is 
intrinsic to the whole analysis there. And yes, that's in Pope Francis, but it's there in the catechism, and that the catechism is looking at this in the context of property, in the context of the seventh commandment. Comments so far? commentators would kind of argue in the reverse direction that the whole thing of humans and human technology actually is a part of this whole thing of cultivating the earth so we're not because otherwise you'd only cultivate it with your bare hands where actually it's part of humans rational nature in the image of the rational God to make tools and ever better tools And that command to till the earth and keep it is before the fall, before original sin. So at that stage, it isn't by the sweat of your brow. It's just a command to make it all bring forth fruit. Go forth and multiply, be fruitful. That's what we are to enable to have. Okay, over the page. So we have looked so far at a tyrannical anthropocentrism in which we abuse our power over creation, an authentic anthropocentrism in which we see that it exists relative to us. It's here for us, for humanity. Now I want to focus next on the question of property as a lens for looking at this. So, page four. So, the material environment as property. The catechism treats of the environment in the context of property, or in the context of sins against the seventh commandment, prohibiting theft, and note that this is the traditional way of viewing our obligations with respect to the environment. So St. Thomas says, he that kills another's ox sins. Sins not by killing the ox, but through injuring another man's property. Yeah, so you have there an image, not of killing the cow as being a problem in itself, but the fact that the cow belonged to somebody else. So property is the lens by which um, it's being looked at.
the material environment, I say, belongs to everyone. So as Lazarus of Sea puts it, it is our common home. There's a, we're going to emphasize one thing on this page. It's the next line there quoted from the Catechism. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. So, given first to our first parents, Adam and Eve, um, but through them to all of humanity. Now, we'll come on to private ownership, I think, next lecture after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, so the use of all the goods of creation is mediated via private ownership, but the common ownership of the material ecology remains primordial. So God has put all this stuff out here for humanity. That's, that's the basic gift. And how do you use it? How do you make that common ownership workable? Well, different people are responsible for different bits. That's what private ownership means. But the basic principle is that it's given to all humanity. So my use of it, your use of it, has to always have in mind this primordial gifting to all of humanity. Okay, so point A, theft from future generations. Um, destruction of the environment is a sin of theft against future generations, since it deprives them of the ability to use the material creation responsibly. Um, Sam, could you read that quote from the Catechism for us, the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment enjoins respect to the integrity of creation. Animals like plants and animate beings are by nature destined for the common good of past, present, and future humanity. Use of the mineral, vegetable, and animal resources of the universe cannot be divorced from respect or moral imperatives. Man's dominion over inanimate and other living beings granted by the Creator is not absolute. It is limited by concern for the quality of life of his neighbor, including generations to come. It requires a religious respect for the integrity of creation. And then there's a block quote from Pope Benedict. Um, Nick, could you read that for us? A greater sense of... So intergenerational solidarity, that's between generations, between your generation and the children after you. A greater sense of intergenerational solidarity is urgently needed. Future generations could not be saddled with the cost of our use of common environmental resources. This is a responsibility that present generations have towards those of the future. Natural resources should be used in such a way that immediate benefits do not have a negative impact on living creatures, human and not, present and future. That the prote protection of private property does not conflict with the universal destination of goods. That human activity does not compromise the faith, the fruitfulness of the earth, 
for the benefits of people now and in the future? So we destroy the environment. We are stealing the property of the generation that comes after us. We leave an environmental mess that can be cleaned up, but we don't pay to clean it up. We leave it as a problem for the next generation. So that's a violation of justice between generations. And you know, your generation complains often about how the baby boomers are saddling you with all kinds of monumental government debts, um, but environmental debts and problems would be part of an intergenerational injustice that's going on. So the strip mining that's going on for the creation of batteries for electric cars. Um, so the electric cars are an environmental good, stopping the pollution of that car over there. Um, but the strip mining that's being done to acquire those battery resources is causing destruction there. It's also because of the wages and exploitation of the, the mining process and injustice on that level as well. So this would be the kind of thing where Pope Francis is saying, you can't just look at one bit of the puzzle. There's the whole um, human relationships, human ecology we're gonna come on to as a word, a phrase in a minute. Um, But my key point here in this theft from one generation to the next, and that's a useful measure for thinking about environmental destruction. Point B there, ecological resources seen as property. Uh, Pat, could you read that quote? So this is from Pope Benedict again. In addition to a fair sense of intergenerational solidarity, there is also an urgent moral need for a renewed sense of intergenerational solidarity, especially in relationships between developing countries and highly industrialized countries. The international community has an urgent duty to find institutional means of regulating the exploitation of non-renewable resources involving poor countries in the process in order to plan together for the future. And he also says, if you want to cultivate peace, protect creation. So let me give an example here. Water, it's sometimes said that the next generation of wars aren't going to be fought over oil, they're going to be fought over water and access to water. So to take one example, Israel. Um, the temperature, the average temperature of Israel, even in supposedly global warming, the average temperature of Israel is now two degrees centigrade. What's that Fahrenheit? Is that six, seven degrees Fahrenheit? It's a significant drop, the average temperature in Israel um, since the creation of the State of Israel. And they've achieved that by a massive um, tree plantation scheme. You know, the Israelis are amazing in their use of technology, uh, farming, irrigation. But, where have they got that water from? They've got it from a river that isn't entirely in Israel. It's the border with Jordan. 
the Dead Sea, the, the water level of the Dead Sea has dropped further and further and further. They've taken water for themselves without any measure for how that should be shared with the other countries around them. Similarly, many places in Africa, they're saying this is going to be the next round of what you're going to be fighting for. Not oil, but, but water. So the environment is property from one generation to the next in terms of theft, but also intra-generational, meaning within your own generation. How you use the environment, relate to the environment. Property is a useful lens for looking at that. What right do, do you have to it? Well, if you treat it as property, that gives you a, some kind of measuring handle. Yes, um, so a lot of the stuff, um, I understand what you're saying, but I, I guess I don't know how this applies to like Yeah, um, well, we vote in our politicians. Um, we should be holding them accountable for what policies they have. So, yes, there are your kind of eco-warriors who want to treat us as a cancer on this planet, and we shouldn't be voting for them. But we need to also be looking to call forth the generation of politicians that have a an agenda that's a Catholic understanding of the environment rather than just we can use it any way we like. Which is kind of fine as long as you are the country that's got the biggest military might in the world. But when that crumbles for you um, and Canada invades. Um, so I suppose, you know, how we elect our politicians and the policies we hold them accountable for at, at one level, at this level. We'll come on to some of the question of individual behavior in a minute. Any other comments, thoughts? Have you heard of this, this question of water rights? I'm guessing you, some of you, One of my points would be they're not 
inherently damaging, so we need to be looking to do them in a way that doesn't damage. So having a disposable cup for me to drink water, um, now if that was a paper cup, it would instantly and easily biodegrade and wouldn't cause a long-term environmental issue. The fact that our institution uses plastic cups in our water fountains, uses plastic cups in the refectory, um, we use an awful lot of plastic place um, we're choosing to use things we don't have to use and something similar with technology that you can use technology in a wasteful way a polluting way or in a way that's keeping an eye on the question of pollution yeah Sorry? Does that mean we should buy you a water bottle so you're not using those plastic cups? Um, or I could buy myself a water bottle. Yeah, that's... Um, Interesting you chose to use that plastic cup. You must not care about the planet, Robert. Thank you, thanks. I'll, I'll be careful not to criticize myself again. <laughs> But in all seriousness, actually, those are the kind of questions we should be asking ourselves. Sorry? I said, going off what Sam said, what are we supposed to do? I'm like, well, we can do little things every day. Right. Governments are made up of people that also have to make little decisions every day. So there's someone else in this room who brought his own bustle? But plastic, but not disposable, and continually creating more and more of them. Um, and so our whole Amazon um, shopping culture, you know, that, that stuff imported from China, really cheap, really available, um, and we buy it for $1.99 um, and then throw it away because it's the wrong color. I didn't like the way it looks. or. So just because we can get all these things doesn't mean we shouldn't be asking ourselves an environmental set of questions, not just can I afford the 199 whatever there on Amazon. Okay, this leads us on to page five, um, which is um, what I've called point six, a need for changed lifestyles. Um, so actually, let's read through. I know there's, there's a big blocks of quote, but let's read through all of these. Um, Luciana, can you start with the first one? So Pope Benedict. It is becoming more and more evident that the issue of environmental degradation challenges us to examine our lifestyle and the prevailing models of consumption and production which are often unsustainable from social, environmental, and even economic point of view. We can no longer do without a real change of outlook, which, we, which will result in a new lifestyle, in which the quest for true beauty, goodness, and communion with others for the sake of 
income and growth, other factors which determine consumer choices, savings, and investments. Edu <coughs> education for peace must increasingly begin with far-reaching decisions on the part of individuals, families, communities, and states. We are all responsible for the protection and care of the environment. This responsibility knows no boundaries in accordance with the principle of subsidiarity. It is important to everyone to become, to be committed at his or her proper level, working to overcome the prevalence of particular interests. So that's from that godless liberal, Pope Benedict. <laughs> yeah. And if you notice within that, he was quoting the Pope before him, John Paul II. Yeah, this isn't all new under Francis. Carlos, could you read the next quote for us? Conserving limited energy resources, technologically advanced societies must be prepared to encourage more sober lifestyles while reducing their energy consumption and improving its efficiency. At the same time, there is a need to encourage research into the utilization of forms forms of energy with lower impact on the environment in a worldwide distribution of energy resources so that the countries lacking those resources can have access to them. Again, Pope Benedict. Um, I'm sure you've all heard the, the phrase of Pope Francis, the scrap culture. Uh, Joe, could you read that block quote? The scrap culture has also made us insensitive to waste, including food waste, which is even more reprehensible when in every part of the world Many people and families are suffering from hunger and malnutrition. Once our grandparents were very careful not to throw away any leftover food. Consumerism has led us to become accustomed to the superfluous and the daily waste of food, which we are sometimes no longer able to value correctly, as its value goes far beyond mere economic parameters. Note well, though, that the food we throw away is as if we had stolen it from the table of the poor or the hungry. I invite people, I invite everyone to reflect on the problem of the loss of loss and waste of food to identify ways and methods that addressing this issue seriously may be a vehicle for sharing and solidarity with the needs. When food is shared equally with solidarity, nobody is devoid of the necessary. Each community can meet the needs of the poorest. So let's just reflect for a minute on the thing of wasting food. Um, and obviously, when we're in an institution like this, it becomes more and more easy to just lose sight of this altogether because we're rarely buying our own food. But I'd often be aware in the rectory, um, if there's food that I'm throwing away, when was the moment of waste? When was the moment of sin? Um, and it was almost always actually when I was doing my shopping. Because once the food's gone past its eat-by date, once it's in my refrigerator and there's mold on it, the fact I didn't eat it fast enough, you know, I shouldn't become gluttonous in order to not throw away the food. The moment I did something wrong was when I bought more than I needed. Um, and to see that as an ethical issue, a matter of sin. And it's easy to go on. I think that this is, I 
feel like that's kind of a, a strong thing to say. Um, because we're coming up on Thanksgiving and we're trying to prepare food for a lot of people. And so should we be shopping, saying, okay, let's not get too much because we don't want to sin right now, you know? Um, don't we want to make a lot of food so that everybody, you know, has food to eat and it's the day of celebration, you know, and we eat. And then, but then we don't want to be gluttonous, we don't want to eat too much, so there's leftovers, so many leftovers, because some people decided to eat their own food, and then there's all these things, and then there's waste. Um, I'm not sure I see sin there. I think it was, there was, you know, maybe it could have been planned better, but how can you really figure that out perfectly? I feel like that's pretty rigid to put sin on this. I mean, obviously, in Everyday situations, I can see this, but I mean, I don't think that in all situations it's sin to, to waste. Well, I was talking about my rectory. I wasn't talking about Thanksgiving here. Yeah. Um, so we think of St. Thomas's thing about virtue being uh, a mean between extremes. Um, so there would be a way of being so obsessive about not wasting food that we lost sight of all the other things that we need to hold together. So when you feast, naturally you are buying more than you need. That you eat more on a feast day than you do on a day of fasting. Um, to buy more for a feast is just a natural thing. That's what a feast is. But even when feasting, I think you can be asking yourself the question, actually, have we got, are we going to be wasting? And it is much more difficult with an institution when you're not measuring your individual needs, but they're trying to feed a whole whole group of people. But it is ultimately an ethical question. And they do a lot of serving yesterday's food today. Right, and they serve um, making soup out of it. Um, so. so one of the things Pope Francis and Benedict are pointing to is that the, econ the economic question shouldn't be your only question. You shouldn't be thinking, well, we've got enough money, we can buy enough food to throw it away then. Um, you should also be seeing the food waste as a problem in itself. And that phrase, chained lifestyles, um, 
we do in the West just have a whole lifestyle we are a part of where we're just habitually not thinking about these questions. Okay, point seven on my list here now. Um, and I've articulated this before, but let's just make the point again. The connection between technology and the tilling of creation. So I say man's vocation is to till the earth and keep it, not merely passive. We don't just wait for the fruit to grow on the tree. Um, humans use their rational powers to develop the material environment. Technology and industry are not the enemy of creation, even though both can be abused to pollute creation. So Max, as you were asking about this, could you read that quote? So this is from the book at footnotes there. Creation becomes benign. Creation becomes benign for man and realizes potentialities built into it by the creator to the degree that developing his own created powers. Man takes dominion over creation. Left on its own, nature is limited in what, is, what it can achieve by its own creative processes. Thus, nature would fail to re real, release the potential God intended for it, if not for the instrumentality of, instrumentality of human creativity and labor. Industrialization and modern agriculture have enabled more people to live, and to live a more full human life than ever advances in technology. So one example could be genetically modified crops. So the development of genetically modified crops has enabled you know, Africa in particular to feed vastly more numbers of people than they would have been able to otherwise. Technology, and with genetically modified crops, actually quite advanced technology, is enabling creation couldn't have done by itself. And the point that this is the whole process of how we should be engaging with reality. But not polluting it. So technology isn't the enemy, but technology needs to be used properly. That the, the burning river that we're famous for here in Ohio, yes? Um, would be an example of not using technology well. Okay, comments before turning the page? Oh, we're just turning the page. Okay, so again, I'm trying to present to you, as the church is presenting to us, different lenses, different phrases for how to evaluate, how to measure, how to think about this. So point eight here is a thing called the human ecology. Uh, and this is, I think this was coined by Pope Benedict, um, but has been used by Pope Francis as well. So the human ecology. The environment isn't just material, but social and human. It's this, this whole that needs to be cultivated, protected, and brought to its potential. So what is the whole? Our physical existence, our social existence, our spiritual existence. So caring for 
Paul, caring for the soul of the unbeliever, that's all part of the human ecology. It's this whole that needs to be respected, brought to its potential. So Pope Francis points out how the human environment is often destroyed. Family relationships, divorce, poverty, inadequate housing. Um, this is an ecology question, the human ecology. Quoting Pope Francis, what is needed is something like a human ecology correctly understood. Rainforests deserve indeed to be protected, but no less does man. Yeah, so it's trying to broaden the use of the word ecology here. Pat, could you read the quote from Pope Francis then? Isn't that kind of weird to say, shouldn't he say, but more so does man? Seems like he's making more force than man. But no less so. I think the precise German is using a delicate understatement to be making a strong point. So you're right, but, and that struck me as I was reading it, just how Pope Benedict it sounded. Um, this beautiful, polite, carefully constructed, subtly phrased, um, it's a, it was a different era. Okay. The folks have spoken of human ecology closely linked to environmental ecology. We are experiencing a, experiencing a moment of crisis. We see it in the environment, but mostly we see it in men. The human being is at stake. Here's the urgency of human ecology. People are discarded as if they were trash. When food is shared equally with solidarity, nobody is devoid of the necessary. Each community can meet the needs of the poorest. Human ecology and environmental ecology go hand in hand. I would like then for all of us to take seriously the commitment to respect and cherish creation, being attentive to every person, to counter the culture of waste and disposal, to promote a culture of solidarity and of encounter. And so I said Pope Benedict used this phrase, human ecology, Pope Francis in Laudato Si. I would say the hinge he uses is also an integral ecology, which is basically making the same point. The reality is interrelated, everything is connected, he puts it as it, everything is related. So it's not just the material order, we need to respect all the different relationships. Actually, the human ecology as well, an integral ecology. An integral ecology in which we are not just equal to the trees. We do have this central status that was created for us, but respecting all the different relationships. Me to my neighbor, me to the generation after me, me to the nation next to me. comments before moving along?
Okay, let's move on. Page seven, cruelty to animals. Um, so, cruelty to animals. Scripture forbids cruelty to animals. Um, so, Proverbs, a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, St. Thomas argues that cruelty to animals leads to cruelty to humans. And why does he say this? Because it habituates the passion of pity in its response to seeing pain in others, since both humans and animals can experience pain. If a man practices a pitiful affection for animals, he is more disposed to take pity on his fellow man. So you see pain in the puppy dog, you see pain in the kitten, and you just torture the kitten anyway, well that will habituate you to not respond well to pain in humans as well. That was also Immanuel Kant's argument against cruelty to animals as well. Um, as I summarise the catechism makes the point that this is contrary to human dignity. So when, I, when I'm cruel to an animal, it's not just that I'm doing something to the animal, I'm actually doing something to my own dignity. If I'm a steward of creation, I'm violating my dignity as a steward of creation in being cruel to an animal. So, contrary to human dignity, cruelty to an animal isn't contrary to the animal's dignity, but is rather contrary to the dignity of the human who is being cruel. So that experimentation on animals is morally limited by its contributing to human welfare. And then we have some quotes from the Catechism saying just that. Um, okay, I'm going to move on and cover the next page and maybe we'll come back to those, read those catechism quotes if we have time. So vegetarianism. Um, just basically want to say um, we should feel comfortable eating meat. Yes. So... And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant-yielding seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them as food. Now, you'll sometimes hear a certain type of Christian claim that we were vegetarians in the Garden of Eden, so if we're going to be good people, we should be vegetarians again. But I say, even if that was what was being described, that's no longer our natural state after the fall. So Genesis later says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. That's the covenant given to Noah. Then in the New Testament, we have the line in the vision St. Peter had, you know, with that banquet lowered down from heaven, rise Peter, kill and eat. You know, that's not a vegetarian. Um, St. Thomas saying, there's no sin in using a thing for its purpose. Animals use plants, 
and men use animals for food. Then the example of the Lord Jesus himself. So Jesus ate fish. The Lord Jesus ate meat. You know, he ate the Passover lamb. He produced catches of fish for food in his miracles. You know, he killed a lot of fish in those miracles. Now, does a vegetarian claim to be better than Jesus? And I think we need to be ready to push with that question. You know, if you're going to be moralistic about this, are you claiming to be better than Jesus? Now, that said, I list here some Christian motives for not eating meat. So, one, penance. So, Fridays, um, many monastic rules, they never have meat as a penance, to never have meat in solidarity with the poor, because meat is more expensive than, well these days it's not more expensive than fish, but um, injustice to humans. So if farming in poor countries takes meat food from the poor, then some people argue this is a reason to not eat meat as a social justice reason. Um, And similarly, cruelty to animals, if where you are the farming methods used are unreasonably cruel to animals as the way that meat is being produced, that might be a reason to forswear meat. kind of linked with my next point here, which is about hunting, Um, hunting as sport. Now, I was raised with a profound revulsion for hunting. Um, I have, over the years, as a Catholic, changed my opinion on that, because that's the only position I find is consistent with our Catholic tradition, that hunting is acceptable. It has limits of what's acceptable, but as a category, it is. So what I say here, hunting is sport. Um, so not hunting to have food, but hunting as sport. See, the tradition. Well, many saints hunted animals, and there's no theologian of antiquity who's ever questioned the morality of hunting. It's just a normal thing to do. So hunting, like all sports, involves skill and perseverance. So I quote one of the Preconcilium Manuals by Davis. Reasonable sport is not cruelty for its own sake, and the pain of animals may be permitted. So if you're just shooting at animals because you like destruction, if you're just shooting at animals because you like to see Bambi suffering, um, that's not the same thing as when the spiritual director of the house is out hunting for deer. And, you know, if you talk to him about how he hunts, there's a real skill involved, a clean kill, a painless kill. Um, This is part of the skill, the sport of hunting. So I note a distinction, therefore, between hunting as sport and hunting as cruelty. Now, how would you distinguish between those two? Well, I notice two ways. One, interior, depending on the motive of the hunter. 
So again, as I just said, if the hunter is enjoying inflicting pain, then that can be a Christian motive. Exterior. If the action itself is objectively cruel, regardless of the hunter's will. And I'd note that different forms of hunting involve different degrees of distress to the prey. So I would say you can't say that all hunting is therefore acceptable. You'd have to somehow evaluate the degree of distress caused to the pain, to the, to the prey. But I note here a danger that humans often project human-like meaning into animal expressions, facial expressions. We often imagine animals as thinking with the type of worried stress that a non-rational creature simply isn't capable of. Uh, Sam, could you read that block quote at the bottom? So this is from uh, a moral theologian, Peshke, one of the last manuals of moral theology. If it is hard to decide whether an actual corporal pain of humans is more intense than ever that of higher animals, the possibilities of the uh, psychic. psychic suffering of humans are certainly by far greater because their psyche is much or is so much more developed and therefore so much more liable to injuries. Humans have a greater awareness of what is happening and of what is possibly or certainly still going to happen. And this is not to them, but also to their relatives and other relations. They are also beings with foresight and plans for the future, which may be impaired by their suffering or even cut by a sickness, mutilation, or a loss of necessary property. So if you torture a goldfish, the goldfish only has a memory of three seconds. It cannot remember what happened to the past. It can't worry about the future. Whereas if you torture me, I am worrying and my psychic engagement with the pain is part of what changes the experience of the pain. Um, even torturing a kitten. Now a kitten has a memory much longer than three seconds, unlike the goldfish, but it can't imagine the future. And it therefore can't experience pain the way a rational being does. So we need to be wary, therefore, of projecting onto animals an experience of pain that only humans can have. So I'm giving criteria there. Um, but nothing I'm not giving any definitive examples of hunting that is or isn't permitted there isn't much moral analysis in this in the tradition yeah so what would you say about like those like uh, hunters that like mount their, mount their head on like the wall as like a trophy or like take pictures with it and like you know post it on social media well, if it is a sport, if it has involved skill, if it is truly, therefore, a triumph, then to be proud of it is natural. To be rejoicing in the destruction, per se, to be rejoicing in the pain, per se, 
that would then be nothing to be proud of. So I guess I, I don't have a, I don't think there's, I don't see a moral issue with mounting a deer head on your wall. Um, as a category. Would there be like a more specific word for Yeah, I think that's the point Peshke is trying to make there, that on all kinds of levels, our experience of pain is different, is greater, so that it's just not reasonable to try and equate them. But beyond that, I don't really have a, a handle or a tool to give you. Okay, just wrapping it all up, what have we said today? We've been started commenting on this attitude that's out there, that humans are inherently a problem to be got rid of, we said in contrast, the Christian vision sees that the environment, the world, is here for us, that we are the center of it. Um, there's a tyrannical way we can apply that, in which we abuse it and destroy it. Or there's an authentic way in which we see it as here for our needs. But not just for my needs, a gift to all of humanity. And therefore, this question of treating the environment as property gives me a handle for seeing how my duty to the environment um, affects my, my neighbour. Um, and so the, the human ecology, the integral ecology, where we're thinking of all of those different relationships, the human ones being at the centre of it, but how those are also affected by how we all relate to the material environment.